kick off today with the Untold Tales of Spider-Man special by Kurt Busiek, Roger Stern, Neil Vokes and Jay Geldhoff, teaming Spidey with that other dicto creation, Doctor Strange. Strange Encounter was a bookshelf square-bound edition for $6, which kind of defeated the point of Untold Tales being at the cheaper end of the market. There's also no real reason for this to be a high-end prestige format book, as a double-sized special issue of the main series would have served its purpose just as well. I mentioned in the first episode of these Untold Tales show that I didn't have this, but listener Dave Walker sent me a link to a reasonably priced eBay auction, and thus it became mine. An issue of Untold Tales I'd never read before now. It's quite exciting to discover a comic that you didn't even know existed as part of a series that you thought you had every issue of. So thank you, Dave, for pointing that pointing me in the right direction. The cover is by Steve Lealoa. She always sounds Hawaiian to me. Lealoa, Lealoa. And is Spidey and Doctor Strange floating around in some typical Strange-style freaky dimension. Lealoa is, Lealoa, Lealoa, is your Lealoa. Is clearly channeling Ditko in his depiction of Doctor Strange's face. It's a nice-looking painted cover with some lovely colours. Two mooks are stealing from the Chicago Museum of Antiquities when they nick something they shouldn't. A mystical lantern owned by somebody called Lantar. What are the odds that someone with that name would require a lantern? It's like a guy named Octopus suddenly gaining four arms. The odds are incalculable. This theft does not go unnoticed by Dr. Stephen Strange, and he lets the Ancient One know about it. Neither Strange nor the Ancient One can track the lantern, but the Ancient One says not to panic. Help will be along soon. Not one to ever miss his cue, Spider-Man, meanwhile, comes across a kidnapping of a nice young lady and stops it. By pure coincidence, it's the two mooks from the opening of the story doing the kidnapping, and they use the lantern to disappear. Spider-Man is confused, but not as confused as when he meets a floating Doctor Strange, who tells him all about the lantern, and Spider-Man, not ready on the case anyway, offers to help. Strange cues Spidey's Spider-Sense in to tune into the lantern, and we're off. So far, so every other Doctor Strange Spider-Man team-up ever written. There seems to be a lot of interest in teaming Spidey and Strange up, and I never get why. They're two completely different characters with completely different types of stories. The only thing they have in common is the creator. Spider-Man doesn't really belong in a Doctor Strange tale any more than Doctor Strange belongs in a Spider-Man story. The only way this can work, as here, is if an ancient artifact is stolen that for some reason Strange can't do anything with, and as such needs an avatar like Spider-Man. This was the case in Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 2, and also Amazing Spider-Man Annual 14, the bend sinister with Ndilabi. There's nothing wrong with this setup, both those Amazing Spider-Man Annuals are fun stories with great art, but this is the third Doctor Strange Spider-Man team-up to have exactly the same basic premise. Chronologically, this seems to be the first Spider-Man Doctor Strange team-up. Spidey doesn't seem to know who he is when they have a chat. Peter is on spring break, which doesn't prevent him from running into Flash, Liz and the rest of the gang at the exact same time Jonah and Betty are walking through town. I never knew Forest Hills was such a hotbed of activity. 
Of course, the mooks choose this very moment to try another kidnapping. Peter runs over to where his spider sense is leading him, and Flash, Liz, Jonah, Betty, and Jason follow. The mooks beam them off to a timeless time, a placeless place, where they encounter another batch of victims. Jameson quickly deduces the mooks aren't smart enough to pull this off on their own, and the real villain stands revealed. Baron Mordo. Because who else was it going to be? It's a Doctor Strange story. There's Mordo, there's the Dread Dormammu, and... That's pretty much it, isn't it, for Doctor Strange villains? Mordo explains that they are all to be used as sacrifices so he can achieve his dream of absolute power! Peter runs off. He returns as Spider-Man as Doctor Strange appears in his astral form. Strange isn't surprised that it's Mordo who's behind all of this. After all, as we've pointed out, he only has two villains, so it was a 50-50 shot. Even in his astrally projected form, Mordo is no match for Strange, so Mordo flees to the dimension of... The Dread Dormammu. I swore to you, I did not know this was coming. Dormammu is behind the whole thing. Bored, Dormammu casts Mordo out, and with him gone, Doctor Strange returns everybody home. There are some interesting moments where Flash Thompson, of all people, manages to convince Jameson that Spider-Man is a hero, but this is somewhat undercut by the ending. Spider-Man realises how... Most of the people have been shaken up by what's just happened and can't really handle knowing about nameless names and placeless places and whatever else they're called. So he asks if Doctor Strange can do some mind whammy on them to make them forget about it. This is noble, especially when Strange points out that Jameson will forget all about Spidey's heroics, but I think we've all realised the dangers of arbitrary mind wiping. Still, for all the similarities to other stories, this was really good fun. Stern writes some great dialogue, and the art was cartoony and interesting. Characterisation is solid, a given when you consider Stern's credentials, and this is a good, enjoyable read. Not worthy of being a prestige format book, though. Back to the main series for a look at Untold Tales of Spider-Man 20, which sees the regular team of Kurt Busiek, Pat O'Leafe and Al Williamson return, along with G.L. Lawrence once again assisting Busiek on plotting duties. Wings of Hatred attempts to answer a small continuity glitch in the Amazing Spider-Man series. If you recall, at the end of Amazing Spider-Man Annual 1, all of the main rogues gallery were imprisoned. But in Amazing Spider-Man issue 18, the Vulture was seen in his full Vulture regalia out on a rooftop reading a copy of the Daily Bugle. In this issue, we find out that the Vulture was released by Nick Lucky Lewis, a gangster from Amazing issues 26 and 27, who was revealed to be the Crime Master. It seems odd that there was a Lucky Lewis and a Lucky Lobo who were both crime bosses, though maybe Stan just wasn't very good at coming up with crime lord nicknames. Anyway, Lewis wants the Vulture to off a competitor, a man named Wilson Fisk. The Vulture isn't really comfortable with this, after all, he's never really been a murderer, so he spends the entire issue trying to convince himself that this is what he really wants to do. This is quite an interesting development. The Vulture is very much a loner, and we wouldn't find out his origins and his real name until Amazing Spider-Man issue 241, nearly 20 years after his first appearance. Other than the Sinister Six, he's not a team player, and we learned why in the aforementioned issue here covered in flashback, or flash-forward, almost panel for panel. The Vulture, Adrian Toomes, worked with Gregory Bestman, only to be stiffed on the ownership of his patents. Toomes turned his inventive genius to crime, and, up until this point, was happy knocking over jewellery stores and robbing banks. Murder is a new one on him, and he's not too happy about it. 
Writer Roger Stern considers the Vulture to be one of Spidey's greatest adversaries because of the similarities between the characters and the eternal dance of youth versus experience. Suffice it to say, Spider-Man, who would have made a decent psychologist, realises that something is up with Toombs and finally gets him to see reason. The Vulture isn't really about hate so much as revenge. It's ironic, therefore, that Toombs, in the midst of trying to convince himself that hate is his motivation, meets up with Jason Ionello on a New York rooftop. Jason, who's been out of sorts since the death of Sally, is considering suicide, which the Vulture calls moronic. Let the hate flow through you, says the wrinkly old buzzard. If you have an empty hole inside you, fill it with something. Hate is as good as anything. After Jason tells him the tale of Sally, the Vulture tells him to blame Spider-Man. It was probably his fault anyway. Whilst the Vulture learns the folly of these words, Jason takes them to heart. Busiek has been developing Jason for some time. He's a proto-Flash, but without Flash's endearing qualities. For all his sociopathic tendencies, Flash has tried to help Peter on occasion, and his adoration of Spider-Man makes him at least have a few likeable traits. Jason was always creepy and fully cognizant of his own attitude. Flash is too dumb to understand what he's saying a lot of the time, whereas Jason actively hates, and this hate has now been given free reign. Arguably, Jason didn't need the Vulture to release the hate, it was always there. Of course, Boussier has to concentrate on these supporting characters, as Peter Parker is pretty well developed and his story mapped out. That's why I haven't mentioned Spider-Man a lot in this issue. He doesn't really have that much to do. There's a hospital bed scene with Aunt May, which we've seen many times before, an argument with Betty, which we've seen many times before, and as this takes place in between the panels of a tightly plotted arc, the three-part Spider-Man Coward storyline from Amazing Spider-Man 17 through 19, Busiek is constrained as to what he can do with Peter. As such, the Spider-Man scenes are funny and well done, but a little samey, although Olive is in his element, drawing Spider-Man and the Vulture fighting high above New York. Spider-Man realising his old foe isn't acting like himself is also an excellent scene. There are two standout scenes. First of all, Norman Osborn, of all people, teases Jonah that if Spider-Man is a coward, then that may hurt the circulation of his paper. The other is the moment where the Vulture almost kills Wilson Fisk. Boussiet manages to orchestrate the moment so Spidey and Fisk never actually meet, and Fisk's unflappable dialogue is witty and well-written. I can't help but think, though, that Fisk would have set Bullseye on the Vulture later. The final scene of the issue is full of foreboding. Jason, Tiny, Flash and Liz are all at dinner when Jason wonders if Spider-Man is, in fact, dead. Like a true sociopath, he relishes his words, his joy at the thought palpable. Jason has crossed a Rubicon, his damaged psyche now firmly transferring the blame for Sally's death to Spider-Man. Issue 21 has a great poster-style cover of Spidey in the original X-Men, Cyclops, Marvel Girl... Iceman, the Angel and the Beast by Pat Oleaf. With the X-Men on the cover, you would be quite correct in assuming that this was a mutant-type tale, as on the opening and second page, we are introduced to a new mutant called Menace. Menace appears at various locations around New York at 1515, 1527, 1532 and 1539, robbing each place blind and terrifying the public with his rhetoric about how we will soon all live under mutant law. Menace has an interesting look. He's nicked Magneto's helmet and cape ensemble and colour schemes, but favours orange over red and thigh-high pirate boots. 
One of the things the mutants were useful for in their original incarnation was that they stood in for whatever minority subculture was being persecuted at the time, something I think has been lost over the years. Menace is joined by his backing band, the Mutant Men, who are all blue, for some reason. But what of our hero, I hear you ask? Well, Peter Parker isn't too concerned with any of this. He is concerned about Aunt May, who is once again knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door, as we are still in the middle of Amazing Spider-Man's three-part Spider-Man coward arc. Anna Watson pops over to let Pete have the night off, and he wanders over to the Daily Bugle. He's not sure why he walked in this direction. He has no pictures to sell, and Betty's made it quite clear she doesn't want to see him. Pausing outside the entrance, Peter finds his reverie interrupted by Liz Allen, who's out shopping. She talks Peter into getting a bite to eat with her, but as they stroll away, Betty chooses that moment to leave the building and witnesses them both. So far, so normal. Busiek is playing with the notion that Peter and Betty are fizzling out here, and neither quite understand why. Betty clearly has trust issues, and she hasn't ever really told Peter about her life and problems, but he's never really confided in her either. Also, at this point, Peter is clearly in love with being Spider-Man. The freedom the mask gives him has changed him in ways he probably doesn't even realise, and he gets a kick out of it. He also probably doesn't realise that either, but the amount of time we've seen him ditch a date with Betty to go off and play at being superhero tells us this was a relationship he wasn't taking terribly seriously. In fact, on the walk over to the bar, he confides more in Liz than he ever has in Betty. Liz and Peter stumble into the Beatnik's Poets Lounge, frequented often by Bernard the Poet over in the X-Men titles. And here he is on stage and reading the assembled throng some of his bloody awful poetry. Into this cultured gathering stride the co-stars of this fabulous feature. The X-Men in their regular guises of Scott Summers, Jean Grey, Hank McCoy, Warren Worthington III and Bobby Dreg. A conversation then breaks out about mutants, with Peter going to bat for the misunderstood minority, something that pleases Hank McCoy, who overhears it all. Not far away, Menace has attacked again. A man manages to escape through the men's room, and guess where he runs to? Yes, the Beatnik Bar. What a stroke of luck. The X-Men take off with this news, and Peter follows, although Liz is not as tolerant of Peter leaving to take photos as Betty would be. Spider-Man and the X-Men meet, and traditionally, this is where they would fight for a bit. Cyclops has no time for that shit, and basically tells Spider this is all a stitch-up, and why doesn't he join them in capturing Menace? Spider-Man agrees, and we're off to the races. As the X-Men launch a frontal assault, Spider-Man decides upon a sneakier approach. He crawls off down a ventilation shaft and catches Menace in the act, but after listening to him for a bit, he wonders why this Menace has completely different speech patterns to the Menace the X-Men were fighting. This distracts our hero from taking photos, but before long, it's time for fisticuffs. Spidey freaks out a little when Menace gets the upper hand, once again worrying who will look after Aunt May if something happens to him, but it's not enough to prevent him from letting the X-Men know his suspicions. There isn't one Menace who teleports. There are five or six Menaces who all time their hits to make it look like there's only one. Quite a clever scam, really. The mutant men all backfire when the beast figures out they are robots, and Spider-Man declines Cyclops' offer to help them see this through to the end, leaving a sour taste in the X-Men's mouth. In a moment of Stanley irony, Hank McCoy, a.k.a. The Beast, wonders why can't Spider-Man be more like that kid in the bar? There's nothing wrong with this issue. It's entertaining, it's funny, it's fast-paced, and it's really fulfilling, given it's a done-in-one. Once again, Busiek showing us what you can do with a single-issue story. It's definitely worth the money. However, again, it's just a little bit samey. 
It has similar beats we've seen in Amazing Spider-Man at this time. It has no real forward momentum as it takes place in the middle of another story. And whilst the X-Men are okay and all, there's nothing really great about them at this time in the development. They're a carbon copy of the FF, and it would take later creators to make them interesting. What this is doing, though, is showing us the limitations of the Untold Tales formula. Some stories are hampered by the constraints of the title's framework, and this is one of them. This issue just isn't necessary. It's Spider-Man's first meeting with the X-Men, but it's a big... who cares? The most interesting thing about this issue is the Liz Peter stuff. Liz is dumped at the bar, so she calls Flash to come and pick her up, which he dutifully does. She doesn't mention that she was there with Peter. Pete Jason is in the car, and he moves to the back seat to allow Liz shotgun. Whilst in the back, he sees Flash has dug out his Spider-Man costume, the one Flash used to imitate Spider-Man when Doctor Doom caught him back in Amazing Spider-Man issue 5. And Liz berates Flash, telling him not to go and do something that dumb ever again. He does do something that dumb. In fact, he does exactly the same dumb. He pretends to be Spider-Man again and ends up getting beaten up for his troubles, but that's in Amazing Spider-Man issue 18. Jason's interest in the costume seems like obvious foreshadowing. Issue 22 has Spider-Man been menaced by the Scarecrow, not the Batman villain of the same name, but the lesser known and less interesting Marvel namesake. The cover has a big symbolic head with the Scarecrow leering at Spider-Man as he attacked by crows. It's good for what it is. This issue is one of the more interesting from a continuity standpoint. Page 3 of this issue picks up directly after page 19 of Amazing Spider-Man issue 18. Page 7 occurs in between the panels of Amazing Spider-Man 18, panels 1 and 2 to be precise, adding Aunt Anna to a scene she wasn't previously present for. Panels 1 to 3 on page 8 of this issue are recreations of panels 2, 3 and 5 of page 20 of Amazing Spider-Man issue 18. In Amazing Spider-Man issue 18, we cut to the next morning and this issue of Untold Tales throws in an extra scene which takes place in between panels 5 and 6 of page 20 of Amazing Spider-Man 18. Then, Aunt May's famous gumption speech occurs in both Untold Tales and Amazing Spider-Man and Busiek slides in another scene at school in between panels 3 and 4 of Amazing Spider-Man issue 18. The impetus for all this seems to be that it is morning when Peter comes downstairs to see May out of her wheelchair, but the issue itself indicates that it's night time. Then Untold Tales completely omits the famous Spider-Man is back sequence from the end of Amazing Spider-Man issue 18, changing the dialogue in the process. I was okay with adding scenes in and around panels, as Busiek or Tom DeFalco who scripted this keep the dialogue in those panels the same as Amazing Spider-Man, but this almost undermines one of the greatest fist-pump scenes in Spider-Man history. Still, it's possible I'm getting caught up in super nerd nitpickery that no one else really cares about, as the issue itself is quite strong. Peter is still skulking about trying to avoid being Spider-Man due to Aunt May's illness when he runs into Jonah. Apparently, the Scarecrow is back and on a crime spree. The Scarecrow is an old Iron Man villain with an origin that features many similarities to Spider-Man's, and so it's possible that he makes a better adversary for Spider-Man than he does for Iron Man. The Scarecrow was a variety show contortionist called Umberto the Uncanny when he stopped a robber being chased by Iron Man. He realised his powers made him above the norm and he turned to crime. You can see why he's more suited to being a Spider-Man villain and it's odd no one but Boosie made this connection. Iron Man's better when he's fighting high-tech villainy. There's not really much high-tech about a contortionist. The first confrontation between the Scarecrow and Spider-Man doesn't go well, with Spider-Man holding back and the Scarecrow really believing Spider-Man to be a coward. 
To be fair, Spider-Man only planned on taking photos, and getting to a scrap was not on his list of things to do. Flash did occasionally offer an olive branch to Peter, and Peter invariably took it off Flash and snapped it in half in front of him. But it does give Flash more of a personality, and he was less a one-dimensional bully. It helps to differentiate him from Jason as well. Flash is sporting a black eye after the fight he got into when he was dressed as Spider-Man in Amazing Spider-Man issue 18. Speaking of Amazing Spider-Man issue 18, we now intercut between scenes from that issue and this issue. The Green Goblin offers the Scarecrow a place in his criminal empire, but the Scarecrow refuses. This scene is really just to emphasise that the Goblin is still around. With Peter feeling chipper after the May encounter, he dons his costume and goes after the Scarecrow, who he publicly humiliates and announces to the crowd that Spider-Man is back. As I said, this was a great issue in and of itself, with lots of nice touches. Seeing Spider-Man make his comeback is hugely satisfying, and it's made doubly so by having Flash be there to witness it. The art and storytelling are wonderful, and the story rattles along like the Hogwarts Express. The way Spidey defeats the Scarecrow is hysterical. He tosses a web cartridge at him, which the Scarecrow snaps open in a fit of pique, and then suddenly finds himself encased in webbing. Spider-Man wiping the floor with him is very well done, as the Scarecrow slowly realises that he's well out of his league. However, cutting the Spider-Man triumphant scene from Amazing Spider-Man issue 18 and essentially downplaying it doesn't work at all, even if it is replaced by a similar moment on the last page. There is a final tease as somebody caresses a Spider-Man outfit, but you can probably guess who it is given that Flash mentioned that his costume has disappeared. We go into flashback mode for issue minus one of Untold Tales next. Flashback month was a gimmick from Marvel whereby every comic published that month was a minus one, taking place before the series began. It wasn't wholly successful, but a great cover greets the reader for Untold Tales minus one by John Romita. It's a poster-style image homaging the 60s spy thrillers. Richard Parker, resplendent in white tuxedo, looks menacing holding his gun before his face in the classic spy stance. He stands back to back with Murray Parker in a form-fitting yellow backless dress. She too holds her gun before her face. Both characters are on the balcony in a well-to-do house with palm trees swaying behind them. There's a Man Who Lives a Life of Danger is written by Roger Stern with art by John Romita. The amazing Parkers are secretly boarding the Chercherard, a luxury yacht off the coast of the Riviera. Richard Parker discovers that the boat is owned by the Baroness Aladicia von Krupp, a slinky blonde with oodles of cash and ties to a group of neo-Nazi sympathisers. Richard is found out and as he escapes, he's shot in the arm, but he's rescued by Murray Parker after a fierce battle. As they swim for the shore, the yacht explodes. This issue is opened by Stan Lee in an iris, obviously a nod to the Bond movies, and this opens like the 60s Bonds as well, with an action beat involving spies, armed goons and beautiful women and explosions, along with gunplay. Having Ramita as artist gives it a nice throwback feel, and the colouring is especially good. Al Milgram is the Inca, and he suits Ramita far more than he does O'Leaf. The Parkers report all of this to their superiors and are assigned to pursue the Baroness to Bombay. During the course of this sequence, we learn how Richard and Murray met and more about Murray's side of the Parker family tree. But none of it is that interesting, although it does explain where Peter's grandparents are on his mother's side. The dead. Richard was recruited to Super Spidem by Nick Fury and that's where he met Murray, who had a job as a translator. As the Parkers head off on their mission, there's another nice Bond nod. Richard and Murray received their gadgets off Boothroyd, who was more popularly known as Q in the James Bond movies. The Parkers locate the Baroness, who was the mysterious Agent 10 captured, and seems to take her orders from the equally mysterious Supreme One. 
Agent 10 is Wolverine, because 90s, and the supreme one is Baron Strucker. Richard helps Wolverine and the three all escape back to the American embassy where they learn that Murray is pregnant. Uh, this was okay. The art is nice, the story is perfectly serviceable, but having Peter's parents be super spies who know Wolverine and Nick Fury takes a little bit away from Peter's everyman status. Granted, this is just working with what Amazing Spider-Man Annual 5 told us, but that's a story that even Stan Lee forgot about mere minutes after writing it. This is one of those instances where Ultimate Spider-Man's rewriting of Richard and Murray as scientists actually works better. One of the few times I'm going to compliment Bendis. There's a Fred Hembeck backup strip about Lil Peter Parker that's fun to read. Over to another special now, the Untold Tales Annual for 1997, which very much takes its cues from the two annuals written by Leon Ditko in the 60s. Guest stars abound on the cover and in this story by Kurt Busiek without from Tom Lyle. Lyle's an unusual choice for this issue as his style is pretty much carbon dated in the 90s rather than occupying some nebulous world necessary for the conceit of untold tales. Still, Lyle is a good artist. It's flash without being too flashy with a hint of Wilt's potassio to it. The cover demonstrates his style nicely, and it is also very 90s in the sheer amount of characters that are present. Fortunately, it's a wraparound cover as it allows the art room to breathe. It features Spider-Man, Giant-Man, The Wasp, Thor, Captain America, Doctor Strange, Iron Man, Daredevil, the X-Men and the Fantastic Four, all attacking a new figure. He's a man in a white jumpsuit, large sunglasses and blonde close-cropped hair. A budget version of Kirby Crackle surrounds him. Just another mook in a white jumpsuit. It's always darkest opens with the close-cropped blonde man of the cover tending to plants with a young girl. His name is Dr. David Lowell, and he's tending to his rooftop garden whilst explaining to his young friend Murray all about photosynthesis. He is ordered off the roof and told to get to work by his nagging wife. The next page is sometime later, and Dr. Lowell is busting out of Osborne chemicals all aglow and draining the sky of light. Spider-Man tangles with him, but he gets away after dumping a water tower over our hero. This intro is pretty good, and if the art is really anachronistic to the time period this is taking place in, then Busiek's script is more than up to the task of giving the feel of a 60s annual. The reader is called Effendi. There are footnotes about dialogue not being necessary due to the sumptuousness of the artwork, and Peter is once again resplendent in his sartorially challenged yellow tank top. The water tower is typically Spider-Man, with it not being full of water, but some kind of chemical waste, which causes our hero to stink worse than a cosplayer on the third day of a convention. Peter vows that he's had enough of this shit, quite literally, and as this is Saturday, he dumps the smelly Spider-Man costume, takes a shower, and decides to spend the rest of the day being chill. Someone else can worry about the funny, glowy man. The Bugle Building is Peter's next destination. He has photos of the funny glowy man, and Jonah buys them for full rate after Peter points out the Spider-Man in league with new unknown menace angle. He really is his own worst enemy. Betty blows Peter off, saying she has other stuff to do, and so Peter is left to wander New York to see what's happening. Whilst he does this, every other superhero in New York is left to tangle with the funny glowy man who has been named Sundown by the media, because this is how all good supervillains get their names nowadays. Giant Man, The Wasp, Thor, Captain America, Doctor Strange, Iron Man, Daredevil, the X-Men and the Fantastic Four all take a pop at Sundown, but Peter has to hear the news off of the expositional news network, copyright Michael Bailey, when he bumps into Flash in town. Flash is carrying one of those little transistor radios around with him. Peter quickly runs off to don his stinky costume and join the fray.
Now, I know that this is the untold tales of Spider-Man annual, and therefore Spider-Man has to play a large part in the story, but earlier Peter vowed that today was a Spider-Man free day. His costume reeks of con funk, and every other superhero or team are already fighting Sundown. There isn't really any reason for Spider-Man to get involved with this. Now, granted, Peter's innate responsibility is one of his character traits, and yes, he feels somewhat responsible for letting Sundown go earlier, but if the FF and Thor are already there, surely it would seem to me that the situation is in hand. Peter seems to agree, because after donning his costume, he changes his mind and decides to go to where he first thought Sundown to see what he can find out. Peter eavesdrops on two convenient conversations, one between the poor people cleaning up Sundown's mess and the other an Osborne Chemicals board meeting. From this, Peter learns that Sundown is Lowell, who was passed over for promotion, and therefore decided to eat some of the experimental fertiliser he was working on. Yes, Sundown became a supervillain by literally eating shit. Norman Osborn has apparently learned all this as well, and that Lowell's super shit is similar to the formula that made him the Green Goblin. Spidey then does more detective work. I say detective work, he once again sits outside of Lowell's apartment and listens in on yet another convenient conversation. Lowell is much put upon. His wife is a cow, he's been overlooked at work, and his funding has been cut. Spider-Man feels bad. If only he'd treated him as a person, rather than a supervillain. Spider-Man then meets the kid, Murray, who wants to help, but Spider-Man says that it's better if she stays out of the way. Sadly, she doesn't listen, and she follows Spider-Man. Apparently, Lowell's apartment block isn't too far from the bugle where the fight is happening. Spider-Man tries to reason with Lowell, but he's too far gone and he lashes out. Instead of Spidey, Lowell hits Murray, who brought the spider plant for him to look at. It's not made explicitly clear, but it is heavily implied that Sundown fries poor Murray's hand off. Shocked by what's happened, Lowell hands himself over to the authorities and Thor takes Murray to see Dr. Don Blake. This is odd. It's an entertaining story, but there's very little to the character of Lowell. I frequently feel unappreciated at work myself, but I don't ingest some super shit and go on a rampage. Spider-Man, feeling that trying to reason with Lowell instead of fighting him would have been better, is a very noble idea. But you're cutting the legs off 99% of all superhero stories. A lot of them are predicated on fighting. Still, only Spider-Man thinks of this. Thor and Co. just go in and start punching. The sheer number of guest stars here is fun, but what purpose do they serve? Only Reed Richards comes up with a potential way of stopping Sundown, and only Thor actually does anything in the climax. The rest are purely decorative. I guess what I'm saying is that this is only okay. Sundown would return in Amazing Spider-Man Annual 97, picking up after Lowell got out of jail. The rest of this annual has another gallery of Spider-Man's famous foes, in this case the Headsman, Commander, the Magnificent Boobs, the Eel, the Black Knight, Gordon Savinsky, the Radioactive Man, and Scarlet Beetle. There's also another Fred Hembeck backup about a young Peter Parker learning what it means to be a bully that also features Matt Murdock. It can't be in continuity, because Matt Murdock is a good number of years older than Peter. Finally, there's a couple of funny comic book covers for issues you'll never see, featuring Spidey's gals Gwen and Murray Jane, Uncle Jonah instead of Uncle Scrooge, and Spider-Man's pal, Flash Thompson. A lot is going on in the next issue, number 23, co-written once again by Busiek and Tom DeFalco. In the shadow of the crime master, Flash is out a villain who only appeared in two issues of Amazing Spider-Man, but here is developed into an intriguing villain. The crime master notes that he has only adopted this silly alter ego to try and keep up with the new costume crowd that have populated New York of late. It kind of shows. 
The crime master's costume is a suit with a hat and a plastic mask. A little bit more effort wouldn't have gone amiss. In addition, Spider-Man is throwing rocks through people's windows and Jonah wants Peter to get photos proving Spider-Man kidnapped noted scientist Bartholomew Carson and his daughter. There's a lot to unpack here. Firstly, the reader knows Spider-Man isn't the one throwing rocks through people's windows, nor did he kidnap a noted scientist, so there's a mystery to be investigated. Secondly, the leave-it-to-be-the family who have the stone thrown through their window have to be a parody. It's a clean-cut mum and dad both wearing their Sunday best to dinner and little ginger-haired Bobby drinking his milk. They are referring to the events of Amazing Spider-Man issue 20 where J. Jonah Jameson played a pivotal role in stopping the Scorpion. This isn't what actually happened, but that's what happens when you get your news from the Daily Bugle. The Bugle scene is exposition, but handled well. We obviously need to know about Dr. Carson and his daughter for the story, but there's a nice appearance by Ben Urich and the notion that Betty keeps a photo of her new boyfriend, Ned Leeds, on her desk at work. A desk Betty knows Peter will walk past pretty much every day. I'll let you decide what this makes Betty. The Crime Master starts his scene by looming over New York City. The reader is led to believe that this is a symbolic splash page, but it's a nice fake-out, as the next page reveals that the crime master has built a scale model of New York to better plan his criminal empire. It's nice that he has a hobby. The crime master has kidnapped Dr. Carson and has him working on a super gimmick that will crush his competition. The gimmick is a group of people being controlled like puppets to do his bidding. Well, he didn't say it was an original super gimmick. Peter drops by Betty, who calls shoulders him, but he's distracted on the way home by a bank robbery. This is just what he needs to get his headspace away from thoughts of Betty Brandt, and snapping photos will give him some much-needed cash. However, the robbery doesn't quite go as planned. The robbers are the Crime Master Super Squad, and they own Spider-Man. I'll be honest, I didn't totally buy this scene. Spider-Man has the strength of at least 20 men, so being taken out by these six was pushing a bit. They may be being operated from afar and be enhanced, but I don't buy that they're being jacked up to quite that degree. I also didn't really buy that Spider-Man doesn't have room to manoeuvre. Seems like a pretty big bank to me. Anyway, Spidey emerges beaten and battered, but manages to get a spider tracer on the boot of one of the men. The Crime Master isn't impressed. Why did my super squad leave Spider-Man alive? He demands. Dr. Carson tells him that the men aren't programmed to act instinctively. They subdued Spider-Man and, the programming fulfilled, they simply moved on. The Crime Master demands that they be able to override this programming at a whim, warning Carson that if he does not comply, his daughter will pay the price. Peter, meanwhile, has managed to sell his photos and later that day runs into Liz and Flash. It is at this moment that the Urzatz Spider-Man makes another appearance, showering the gang with garbage. Peter is amused that Flash refuses to believe Spider-Man would perpetrate such a stupid gag and decides to follow up on the imposter later. What's nicer about this scene is the bruises on Peter's face. I think Spider-Man was the first comic strip to actually show that constantly getting into a fight did take its toll on the man under the mask. A nice touch that has once again been picked up and ran with by later creators to much overdone effect. It's fine to show Peter with a black eye or a split lip. I don't need to see him get his eyes poked out. Spidey swings back after Carson, following the tracer he planted earlier. In a nice touch, he notices that the signal from his spider tracer seems to make his spider sense tingle, prefiguring his later ability to use his spider tracers in conjunction with his spider sense. The ending follows the pattern you're expecting. Spider-Man follows the signal, finds Carson and his daughter and frees them. 
It's interesting in that Busek throws us a number of funny curveballs, such as Spider-Man not knowing how to get out of the building. Carson explains to Spidey how his Cerebra chip works, and Spidey lays the bad guys low by, you've guessed it, reversing the polarity on his Spider-Tracer to counteract the frequency of the chip. Bad guys fall down, police arrive, daughter rescued. Peter Parker's photos exonerate Carson, and in return, Carson promised Peter a favour. Any favour at all. Peter asks if Dr. Carson will take Betty's mother to his clinic and, free of charge, look after her and maybe use the chip to make her better. This wraps up another of Busiek's subplots, this time concerning Betty's mother, and explains how Betty can just leave in a few issues' time in Amazing Spider-Man. What Peter does here is very magnanimous, especially given the way Betty's treated him of late, but it once again paints Betty in a very bad light. Once her mother is in a private clinic, she buggers off with a fancy piece and leaves. Way to go, Bet. Still, the ending where Peter overhears Betty talking to her mother is nice. It's a lovely piece of Parker bad luck that Betty feels unworthy of Peter and pulls back when he's nice to her. But he wouldn't deserve her if he treated her badly. This says a lot about Betty's mental state. This was another fine issue. Busiek starts to wrap up his subplots in preparation for leaving the book. Speaking of leaving, without a lot of fanfare, this is Pat O'Leaf's last issue. The letters page casually mentions that he's off to draw the new Spider-Man team-up book, which didn't exactly set the world afire, but other than that, there's no big goodbye, as that's saved for the next issue. Olief has turned in a stellar job during his time on this book, offering a clean, crisp art style that didn't skimp on detail, but offered up some ingenious fight scenes and character moments. In this era, he was a breath of fresh air. Olaf does provide the cover for the final two issues, though, and this also wraps up some loose ends, this time concerning Batwing. He dominates the cover, enveloping Spider-Man and Flash Thompson in his leathery wings. DeFalco scripts over a Busiek plot, and Bob McCloud of the Clan McCloud provides the art. Flash Thompson is talking to the people who've been victimised by Spider-Man recently in an effort to figure out what's going on! Unfortunately, the Flash is no Sherlock, and his detective skills are somewhat lacking. He is sure of one thing. Spider-Man is innocent. He vows to continue the investigation to Tiny and Liz, living by his credo. What would Spidey do? This provides the title of the story. This opener is a little bit off. McCloud can't draw teenagers, so Flash and Tiny look 25. Tiny has a grey wife beater on and Liz a pair of Daisy Dukes, which fits, I suppose, as we are approaching the end of Peter's high school career. Flash's investigation lead him to an eight-year-old who's had his bike stolen by Spider-Man. To be fair to Flash, he doesn't really have a lot to go on. Meanwhile, the real Spider-Man is duking it out with Batwing over the concrete canyons of New York. Spider-Man lures him into a building site and uses the heavy machinery to confuse his sonar. Instead of utilising this opportunity to take Batwing off the streets, Spider-Man elects to let him go and goes off and sulks for a bit. While sulking, he calls Kurt Connors to ask why Batwing isn't with him in Florida anymore. Am I alone in thinking this is a dumb idea? Spider-Man has the perfect opportunity to take Batwing out of the picture here and then call Connors. The dialogue here may as well say, I let him go because if I don't, the story will end. What follows is a short yet beautiful scene between Flash and his cop father. Flash's dad likes a drink a little more than he should, as this brief page shows us. And we learn why Flash is like he is and why he idolises Spider-Man. Flash's dad doesn't seem to be much of a father figure to him, so he's latched onto a, a mysterious man who he can project himself onto. 
Spider-Man being a mask figure allows Flash to imagine it's him or his father under the mask. It's why he's so steadfast in his loyalty. He's a man who ostensibly does the same job his dad does, but does it so anonymously. So Flash can imagine being Spider-Man and it be real. It's probably why you can't conceive of Peter being Spider-Man. If Spider-Man is anything, he's like Flash, impulsive and lawless. Flash probably imagines being as free as Spider-Man in the same way Peter uses Spider-Man to achieve that same freedom. Anyway, Flash continues to follow his leads, which consists of him sitting in an alley, eating fries, waiting around. Liz conveniently finds him just as the fake Spider-Man dobs a badly painted Spider-Man face on a shop window. Liz wants to call the cops, but Flash is determined to do this alone. They follow fake Spider-Man to a warehouse, because it's always a warehouse, where he removes his mask to reveal the face of Jason Ionello. Jason has a complete emotional breakdown, which stuns Flash, who wanted a simple case that he could end using his fists. You know, like Spidey does. Realising that this isn't the way forward, Flash tells Jason they will get him the help he needs. Spider-Man, meanwhile, has spoken to Connors, who tells him that he had a cure for Batwing, a.k.a. Jimmy Santini, that, for some reason, didn't work. Batwing fled back to New York, determined to die. Spider-Man tries to reconnect with Batwing's mother, but she wants nothing to do with the demon that her child has become. Spider-Man then must confront Batwing himself, and this leads them to come into contact with the police who want to shoot Batwing. But Spider-Man puts himself between them, saying he's a 12-year-old boy. It's all about to go horribly wrong when Mrs. Santini shows up. Her love is what's needed, and little Jimmy's cure suddenly works. Whilst this is all very convenient, it's a touching ending tying into the Flash plot in that this is a problem that can't be solved by wide cracks and punching. In this, Flash ends up being a lot more like a hero than he thought, even if it was his dad's words about compassion that ring true. Flash isn't really a complicated person, so the fact that he helped Jason by showing him understanding is something he can't really deal with, even after Liz points out his maturity in handling the situation. This was a pretty good issue with a lot of depth to it. We'll never see Jimmy or Jason again, so closure is nice, I suppose, even if I don't care about Batwing at all. The art is fine, but not really in keeping with the other issues. Ron friends are out at last and would have been a much better fit for this. The penultimate letters page is a farewell from all of the team, despite the fact that Pat Oleaf has already left. The final issue, number 25, has a Pat Oleaf cover, which is simply the Goblin's Ugly Mug filling the page. Roger Stern joins Kurt Busiek to write the issue, and Ron Friends and Bob McLeod pencil an Inca story entitled Bad Men on Campus. This issue is interesting as it works both as a final issue of the series, with Peter's high school days numbered, but also of a potential future direction for the book, centering on Peter's college life. And this is indeed what was the plan. While sales weren't in the crapper, they weren't exactly best-selling numbers either, so the editors toyed with the idea of Roger Stern taking over as writer and following the narrative into the college year of Peter's life. Sadly, the final decision was made to can the book with Bosiak's last issue, and this idea never came to pass. I, for one, am quite sad about that. Stern was one of the best writers Spider-Man ever had, and the narrative of the college year is a lot looser than the high school material. Ditko was plotting the books quite tightly by the end of his run, so squeezing in stories was becoming more and more difficult. Stanley's working relationship with artist John Romita, who took over after Ditko, was a more affable affair, and with Stan's attention being pulled in many different directions, there are loads of places where additional stories could be slotted and the characters deepened. Still, we have one last issue to enjoy, a heretofore unseen battle against the Green Goblin set at Empire State University. The Goblin is, at this point, in a mutually beneficial relationship with the Crime Master, and both characters reveal their true faces to each other. The Goblin, however, cheats by wearing a Mission Impossible mask that makes it appear that his real identity is J. Jonah Jameson, and we never see who the Crime Master is. 
The goblin gloats after the crime master leaves by removing his fake face and waving his goblin mask around in front of him like a deranged monkey screaming out for kibbles and bits. The goblin always did this, like he was aware he was doing it for more for drama than for any logical reason. Peter is scoping out the bulletin board whilst Aunt May chats to Peter's teacher, Mr. Warren, and Aunt Anna picks up literature for Murray Jane. Peter seems oblivious to the fact that Flash and Liz are here, but will forgive him for not spotting Gwen and Harry, as he doesn't know them yet. The bulletin board is a treasure trove of in-jokes. Henry Pym is about to embark upon a lecture tour. There's another talk being given about the myth of Doctor Strange. And Bernard the Poet is doing a one-night-only gig at the Coffee Agoga. We also learn that Jonah and Norman Osborn will be opening a multi-environmental testing chamber. The reason MJ isn't here is that she has a modelling audition at Kingsley Limited, and we are told that the reason Peter had a Professor Warren in both high school and at university is that they are brothers. This ties up a long-standing continuity goo from when Stan gave different characters the same name. The ESU teacher, Miles Warren, sees his attention caught by a striking blonde girl with stunning sweater puppies. This is all pretty cool stuff, with Stern foreshadowing the future to good effect. Miles Warren will of course develop an unhealthy fascination with Gwen, Liz won't actually go to college, and Kingsley will go on to be the Hobgoblin. The issue then slows down to set up the plot. There's an engineering centre with a seismic ray device that will be tested in the aforementioned testing chamber, which you've already guessed will be important to the story. See, the Crime Master and the Goblin want to nick the SRD, and the opening of the chamber is a distraction. After all, what better distraction than the ball of hotter that is Jonah Jameson? The Crime Master's men burst in to steal the SRD, but Peter recognises them and switches to Spider-Man. Norman is enraged and switches to the Green Goblin after incapacitating Jonah. Can't have the Crime Master seeing them both, can we? What follows is a cracking fight sequence of Spider-Man and the Goblin duking it out whilst trapped in the testing chamber. Of course, Spider-Man has to also protect people from death as the Crime Master rigs the chamber to explode. Excellent, excellent work by the creators on this issue. Fun, funny and exciting with some brilliant artwork. It's colourful and fast-paced with some nice touches and a good way for Untold Tales to go out. Untold Tales was a nice experiment. In an era where everybody seems obsessed with the early days of a character and the retconning of new material into old stories becomes an everyday occurrence, Untold Tales shone brightly by going beyond that. Ultimately, with all the reboots, relaunches and rebirths, Untold Tales has lost a little of its luster, but it's a nice throwback to an era where comics were writer-driven and continuity-minded. By contrast, I recently picked up David Lapham's five-issue miniseries with great power in the cheap bins and I had so many problems with the story as a continuity insert that it almost made my head explode. Boussier got it right. My problem though, and I admit this is my problem, is that the stories were very formulaic. They were done with a fight, the fight would be curtailed, there was some subplot and soap opera stuff, and then the big fight and resolution would happen, but let's be honest here, all superhero stories are formulaic. It's why I think the stories often voted best like... Whatever happened to The Man of Tomorrow, The Dark Knight, or Craven's Last Hunt are due to them not being formulaic. It's a testament to Kurt Busiek that he made this look as good as it was. So, after the new film, if you're looking for some old-school Peter Parker but have already read the original Lee Ditko work, check this out. You may be pleasantly entertained. Hope you enjoyed that look at Untold Tales of Spider-Man. We will be back after I drop a commercial into this particular show. It's midnight, the podcasting hour. 
listeners, it's your friend PJ Frightful. That's PJ as in podcast jockey. And I'm dropping dreadful new episodes every two weeks. When the clock strikes midnight, the podcasting hour shines a candle on the dark corners of DC Comics. Those supernatural sagas of Swamp Thing, Dead Man, The Spectre, and more. The Podcasting Hour. It's a rotating anthology series boasting the terrifying talents of Ryan Daly, Rob Kelly, Paul Hicks, Ben Avery, Doug Zavisha, and other unfortunate souls. Prepare for the unexpected, open a doorway to nightmare, and enter the houses of mystery and secrets. The moon is full, and the dark spirits are rising. For it's midnight, the podcasting hour. Coming this Halloween, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beware. Okay, three emails came in uh, this time. Three? Three emails. Feel like the count on Sesame Street. Our first email is the Palace of Hoff Delights from Chris Franklin. Hello, Andy. Hello, Christopher. I very much enjoyed your Knight Rider episode, even if I only had the vaguest memories of the episode you covered. Knight Rider is one of those childhood shows I never really went back and watched as an adult. I was there the night it debuted, the preview ads having done their job and hooked my seven-year-old mind. I recall not caring for the changes to Kit in later seasons either. They should have gone sleeker, not bulkier. Maybe go with a concept car Chevy had on the books or something. Not sure, but it looked like a half-transformed mask vehicle at times. I really should watch the Goldbergs more often. It is frankly fairly autobiographical for myself and many of us 70s, 80s kids. It's a clever show and at its core is actually very sweet but really sappy. Hard to pull off. Looking forward to more Untold Tales, Chris. Well, thank you very much for emailing in, Chris. It's always lovely to hear for you. From you, sorry. The Knight Rider episode was really fun. Um, there were some choices on that. I was like, should I do the pilot? Should I do Car? Should I do Goliath? And I kind of thought, well... You know, everyone will do those episodes that wants to talk about Night Rider. And then Trent is today's episode where he talks about a completely random fourth season episode. And, you know, along those lines, I thought, well, my favourites were always the Stevie ones. So there you go. That's where that's where show ideas come from. They just appear as if by magic, fully formed. And it requires no work whatsoever. Also uh, on the subject of Night Rider, Charlie Niemeyer emailed in. Hello, Charlie. It's nice to hear from you. Andrew. The three episodes you covered in your recent palace are among my favourite episodes of Knight Rider. Anytime Stevie showed up, the show just felt different. Possibly because Michael was with someone who knew him before he changed his identity, rather than those who only knew him as Michael Knight. Plus, I really like that White Bird song. White Bird is probably my favourite episode, although it does kind of paint Michael in a bad light, considering all the women he's been smooching in on the previous episodes, and his constant flirting with Bonnie. Kind of got over losing his fiance pretty quickly, I'd say, even if the section of the pilot episode between Vegas and the death of Wilton Knight covers four months. Yeah, this is the problem when they, they're making this shit up as they go along, isn't it? There was no mention that he had a fiance before they wrote this show. So suddenly you've got a situation where he's, he's rocking out of motels in the morning, having spent the night with some lady of ill repute. And uh, suddenly that all looks a bit dubious in the wake of, of White Bird. But like I said, the point, White Bird actually gave Michael Knight a character. So, And uh, it's one of my favourites as well, which is why I ended up covering it. Charlie continues, I really used to like her season two appearance until I got older and realised how becoming a lead singer of a rock band is the complete antithesis of laying low. 
which is what witness protection should be about. Also, the Hoff often acts as though he's going to pass out during his performances, which is also annoying. The whole episode felt like a hastily put-together filler episode than a well-thought-out sequel. The scent of roses holds a special place in my heart, even if the line that explains the title and gets Michael to go back to the Foundation seems forced into the script to make the rest work. However, this episode threw out the usual episode formula and really felt different. I just wish it had been held for the final episode rather than shown mid-season. Anyway, great episode as always. Keep on making a difference, Charlie. Well, thank you very much, Charlie. It's nice to hear from you. Especially now that uh, you yourself are not behind the mic as much as you used to be, given uh, given your two children that are growing up rapidly uh, as I watch them on Facebook. Not in a creepy way, obviously. I like photos of people's family. What are you going to do? Better than politics. Our final email is called Walloping Web Snappers uh, by Michael Decker. Hello, Michael. Michael, I believe Michael is a new emailer to the show. Andrew, I've only recently discovered your podcast and have been catching up with both Hey Kids Comics and the Palace of Glittering Delights for the last six months. Your shows are amongst my favourite podcasts and a great way to unwind after a stressful day. Well, thank you, Michael. That's uh, That means a lot. Thank you, too. I want to see, uh, sorry, I went to see Spider-Man Homecoming last Saturday. As a long-time Spider-Man fan, I purchased both my first issues of Amazing Spider-Man and Marvel Tales back in 1975. I'd been overly critical of the previous films for the lack of fidelity to the characters created by Lee and Ditko, so I was really excited to see what Marvel Studios would do with Tom Holland as an age-appropriate high school Spider-Man in what I thought was going to be the first real Spider-Man film. Walloping web snappers indeed, what a punch in the heart. I am genuinely shocked that Marvel Studios, after all the fuss about getting Spidey into the cinematic universe and the well-done introduction of the character in Civil War, would drop the ball so badly. This is the least recognisable version of Spider-Man I've seen since the god-awful alien monster fighting spaceship flying Japanese version of the 70s. Well, it's interesting that. I, I thought it was it was okay, Spider-Man Homecoming. I think Tom Holland's got the potential to be the best one. There were moments, scenes, lines of dialogue, stuff like that that I thought were better than any of the other five, although I still prefer Raimi's first one as my favourite. And I think it's one of those things where I would love to see um, a a version of, a a cinematic version of Spider-Man that was all out faithful to what Lee and Ditko did. But I don't think we're ever going to get that now. Because to introduce this version of Spider-Man into this version of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, it does kind of make sense that he idolises Tony Stark after losing his father figure, which I presume, you know, he still did. Then looking up to Tony Stark kind of makes a little bit of sense. I mean, the major misstep for me was not even mentioning with great power comes great responsibility. I must also come great responsibility. It was more that Tony Stark's, if you're something without the suit, if you're nothing with the suit, then you shouldn't have it, became Spider-Man's mantra for the, the film. I think a mention of Uncle Ben would have been appreciated because my main problem with it was I don't see this kid that Tom Holland is playing as having the hubris to do what Spider-Man Peter Parker needs to do for his origin story. So, I don't know, I'd like to see how that planned out. I mean, maybe Marvel could do a comic book of it rather than put it in the film, but I think that would be interesting. Anyway, Michael continues. I am, rather than being depressed about this monumental disappointment, I decided to binge listen to your excellent seven-part retrospective on the Lee Ditko years of Amazing Spider-Man. This is something I've been putting off for a rainy day, and after homecoming, brother, it's pouring buckets. 
What a treat to hear your thoughtful reviews of these classic comics. You have a wonderful way of explaining why these comics were so groundbreaking and important in the grand history of comics without losing your sense of wonder that seems to elude so many modern day fans. Honestly, I could listen to you rhapsodising about our favourite web slinger for 70 episodes and never be tired of it. Well, be careful what you wish for, Mike. Uh, here's hoping you will continue on to the Lee Romita era, which is my personal favourite period of Spidey history, and your proposed review of the early years of the newspaper strips would be quite welcome. I have the two hardcover volumes that reprint the entire Lee Romita run of strips, and they are fascinating to compare and contrast with the comics. I've got them as well. They're, the, they're what I've got, the two hardcovers. My wife bought me them for uh, my birthday one year. Um, I don't I may carry on to Lee Romita. I don't know. I don't know whether I want to turn this into a Spider-Man show... Or maybe do an issue of Spider-Man every time, whatever I cover. I don't know. I'm still pondering. But I do hope, Michael, that you have listened to and enjoyed the Untold Tales episodes that I've done, which I think are a nice counterpoint, companion piece, whatever you want to call it, to the Lee Ditko stuff that I don't think really get enough love. I don't think Untold Tales gets enough love. So that was the whole point of this series of, of episodes. That's all for now, but you may expect to hear from me again soon regarding old Webhead, as well as a certain overlooked Dark Knight detective of our acquaintance. All the best, Mike Decker. Well, thank you very much for emailing in, Mike. That was very much appreciated. I'm glad you enjoyed the Lee Ditko stuff, because uh, to date, that's still some of my favourite stuff that I've done on this show. Next time, on our all-new episode of the Palace of Glittering Delights, we're going back to the 1970s for a look at the final ever episode of The Bionic Woman. Yes, back to Jamie Summers. As usual, if you want to buy anything from Amazon, if you could do it through the twotruefreaks.com link. I think I've become Mr. Frink from The Simpsons. Is that right? Is that his name? Twotruefreaks.com. Go through that when you buy your stuff from Amazon, and it gives us the kickback that enables us to do shows like this. The Palace of Glittering Delights is a Two True Freaks presentation and hosted by me, Andrew Leyland. All music and clips and all that gubbins are copyrights, so don't sue me. See you next time for another trip to the 1970s. Goodbye.